Well, today we're going to talk about a mystery. So often when we use that word mystery, we think of stories like Sherlock Holmes, the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, or maybe even Scooby-Doo. The mystery motif is even behind a lot of our current TV cop shows and courtroom shows. The storyline goes something like this. Something peculiar happens, often like a crime of some sort. And then the hero or the heroes gradually reveal the answers of the mystery through a mixture of intelligence and ingenuity and logic and luck. The mystery is solved through the gathering of clues and through making inferences from the evidence through the ability to piece the whole story together. Well, that is not the way the word mystery is used in our biblical text this morning. You see, sometimes we use the mystery just because we can't fully understand things. For example, take the migration of the monarch butterfly. Did you know that monarch butterflies migrate? Did you know that the monarch butterfly, all of them that live east of the Rocky Mountains from throughout the United States and Canada, migrate to one certain area in central Mexico, less than 60 square miles, literally to 12 locations within those 60 miles, over 150 million monarch butterflies engulf that area in the winter. Some monarch butterflies fly 2,000, even 3,000 miles to escape the cold weather and to head to Mexico. Well, migration is not a mystery. We know that birds and animals of varying kinds migrate because of the weather and the food supplies. But here is the mystery. Every year, the monarch butterfly comes to the very same place. But every year, there are brand new butterflies. Never once has one monarch butterfly ever migrated to Mexico, flown back to the United States and laid its eggs there in the milkweed plant, the only plant where they lay their eggs, and then gone back to Mexico for the winter. Never once has that happened. As a matter of fact, it takes until the fourth generation of monarch butterflies until they go back to Mexico. From one migration to the next, it's the great-grandchildren that migrate back to Mexico because the lifespan of a butterfly is so short. An adult monarch lives two to six weeks if they're in the first three generations of butterflies for the year. But that fourth generation of butterfly can live up to eight months because they travel that distance to migrate to Mexico. Simply amazing. Well, here's the unsolved mystery. How does the fourth generation, how does the great-grandchildren butterflies, how do they know to migrate and where to migrate because they've never been there before? How do they know exactly where to go? How do 150 million of them end up in the exact same 12 places year after year after year? Well, no one knows. It's a mystery. It's a secret that is yet to be revealed. A biblical mystery is not something like Paul being a detective, searching out the clues and through logic and deduction, coming to a conclusion. No, a biblical mystery is the truth that has been hidden in God in times past that is now being revealed. Biblical mystery is the truth that has been hidden by God in times past that is now being revealed. Well, open your Bibles with me there to Ephesians 
chapter 3, as we delve into the mystery of Christ. Follow along as I read Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 5. It says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in prior generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. One of the very interesting things about our passage today is that it's really a parenthesis, a, a tangent. Paul adds verses 12 through 13 to his letter as he starts to think about his imprisonment on behalf of the Gentiles. By the way Paul writes, we can see what Paul was really getting ready to do was to write his prayer, but he doesn't start until verse 14. I see verse 1 is connected to verse 14. Verse 14 picks up with the very thought that he was getting ready to write. The subject of verse 1, I, Paul, has no verb until you get all the way to verse 14, where it says, I kneel. These verses uh, might have been a parenthesis or a tangent of a thought in the writing of Paul, but they're the very inspired words of God that God wanted him to write and for us to have. But before we dive into that, verses 2 through 13, let's take a look at that verse 1. An important verse. As he's writing this verse, you can almost picture Paul looking around his surroundings under his arrest in Rome. He's in chains. The Roman soldier is there guarding him. As he's thinking about his situation, he writes down verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. There's a lot we can learn from Paul's perspective of his imprisonment when it comes to understanding our own life challenges and difficulties. Paul never regarded himself as a victim, as either of the Jews conspiring against him or of the Roman government. He boldly states that he is a prisoner for Jesus Christ. He wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He wasn't focusing on being falsely accused by the Jews. He was a prisoner for Jesus Christ. You know, perspective changes everything. Sir Christopher Wren was the architect of one of the largest cathedrals in all of Europe, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It was built between 1675 and 1710. The story is told that Sir Christopher Wren one day went walking through the construction area and he asked the worker what he was doing. And the worker said, I'm cutting another stone to make it a certain size and a certain shape. Then he asked the second worker what he was doing. And the worker said, I'm earning as much money as I can for my family. Then he walked up to a third worker and he asked the man, what are you doing? And the man answered, I'm building St. Paul's Cathedral. You see, perspective changes everything. Paul's imprisonment was not the work of any man, of any government. It was the very work of Christ in his life. Paul was literally imprisoned as a God-given opportunity. He was a prisoner 
for Christ Jesus. Paul sees his imprisonment as a distinguishing mark of his apostleship, of his faithful service to God. Why? Because Paul's in prison because of his ministry to the Gentiles. Paul's in prison because he preached the very same gospel to the Jews as he did to the Gentiles. We can see this story so vividly for us there in Acts chapter 21. Let me recount in summary how this story goes for us about how Paul became imprisoned. Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Paul is a good Jew, and he's a good follower of Christ. So while he's in Jerusalem, he went to the temple to worship. But Jews from Asia, perhaps even from Ephesus, where he is writing, saw him at the temple and stirred up the whole crowd against him, saying that Paul was teaching against the law of Moses, that he had even brought a Gentile into the temple. Well, neither accusation was accurate, but that the thought of Gentiles having the same access to God as they did, the crowd ran and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and they were seeking to kill him. Paul's life is literally hanging by a thread. It's in grave danger. The mob wanted him dead and they were about to carry it out. When the Roman commander of Jerusalem heard all this riot and ruckus that's going on, he takes his soldiers and centurions and he runs down to the riot and he stops them from beating Paul to death. The crowd was so violent and so stirred up and so bent on killing Paul that the soldiers had to literally carry Paul to protect him. When Paul reaches the Roman barracks called the Antonia, right there on the grounds of the Temple Mount, Paul asks the Roman commander if he can address the crowd as detailed for us in Acts chapter 22. With permission from the commander, the crowd quiets down as Paul addresses them in their own language. They listen intently to a stirring and impassioned message from Paul as he recounts his life before Christ, as he recounts the work of God in his life, and then a revelation of Jesus Christ in his life. But when he comes to the point of the story, when Jesus tells him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Acts 22.22 says, Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. As soon as Paul mentions the Gentiles, as soon as Paul mentions that God has a plan for the inclusion of the Gentiles, as soon as Paul says that the Gentiles have the same access to God as the Jews, the Jewish crowd begins to go crazy. Paul is literally in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. Paul is in prison because he was doing what God had called him to do. This was the very first day of this five-year-long imprisonment that starts right here there in Acts in Jerusalem. Then he's taken to Caesarea for over two years. And then he's taken to Rome for over two years where he writes this letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 3.13 the last verse of our passage today, Paul says to the Ephesians to not lose heart, to not be discouraged over what he is suffering in prison for them. Because it was his obedience to God in sharing the message of salvation with them that is their glory. Their glory in Christ, their salvation has come through Paul's preaching of the gospel. If Paul had not preached the gospel to the Gentiles, he would not be imprisoned. But then they would not know Christ. 
and they would not know salvation and have eternal life. Paul did exactly what God wanted him to do, and he ended up in prison. But because Paul did exactly what God wanted him to do, God used him to change the world. Have you ever done exactly what God wanted you to do, and you ended up with a negative, difficult outcome? You know, that's something we don't often preach about. That's something you don't often come to understand It's hard for us. Paul spent five years in prison for doing exactly what God wanted him to do. You see, there's this Christian cultural myth out there that if you follow God, then God will bless you. And he'll bless you with happiness and success and security. Paul will eventually die by being beheaded by the order of the Roman Emperor Nero. Doesn't sound like success and happiness. We could tell that story of this biblical truth that Paul's life illustrates over and over and over again, exposing the lie of our Americanized Christianity, that God wants us to be happy and to be successful and to live in security. Oh, folks, we've been sold a bunch of rotten fruit by our Americanized Christianity, and we're the ones that have been spoiled. See, God's purpose for our life is not to make us happy. It's to make us holy. God's purpose in our life is not to bring you material success, but eternal rewards of a life of obedience. God's purpose in our life is not to give us security in the things of this earth, but to give you surety of the Holy Spirit in the midst of life's challenges and ups and downs. What do we want? Do we want happiness or holiness? Do we want material success or or eternal rewards for a life of obedience? Do we want security in our uncertain world? Or do we want the surety of the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives, no matter what this world gives us? What do we want? What do we want for our children? What do we want for our grandchildren? What do we want for our church? God said these radical words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. This is what Jesus said. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Oh, folks, don't you want to be worthy of Christ? I know I do. Jesus says that means we need to take up our cross. That we will sacrifice our wills to his will. That we will lose our life in him. That he would be the highest priority of our lives. Our culture so presses in on us to focus on ourselves. And our Christian culture often feeds that notion that God's highest good is to give us earthly great life. But God sees things differently. God's good for us is focused on our spiritual lives. His highest priority is the maturing of this new creation that he has made through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Since that is God's focus, shouldn't that be our focus? Well, now let's look at verses 2 to 13, this parenthesis, this, the thought of his imprisonment here for the Gentiles, this thought of them stirred in Paul, this desire to teach again about this mystery of Christ. Verse 2 says that Paul was given the stewardship of God's grace. He was a steward of the mystery of God. 
not only that the good news of salvation through Christ was for everyone, but that the good news that the Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. The good news of the church. The word stewardship here is also could be translated administration or it could be translated dispensation. It comes from two Greek words, oikos, meaning house, and namos, meaning law. Our English word economy is derived directly from this specific Greek word, oikonomia. This mystery, this church that Paul has already talked about in chapter 2, teaches us a very important doctrine. That God has different ways of managing his program for mankind from age to age. These different stewardships or administrations are called dispensations. God's principles never change. His way of salvation and faith remains the same, but his methods of dealing with mankind change over the course of history. Without going into great detail, with just the very simplest of understandings of Scripture, we can see that God's principles never change. But he worked differently with those who were before the law of Moses was given. And he worked differently with those who were under the law of Moses. Then he deals with us now differently in the church age because Christ has fulfilled the law. And he worked differently again with those in the eternal state. Distinguish the ages, wrote St. Augustine, and the scriptures harmonize. Paul was made by God a steward of the mystery of God's grace. God made Paul a steward of the mystery of the church age. At the very moment of Paul's conversion, Jesus says of Paul that God had chosen him as an instrument to carry out his name to the Gentiles. Paul often calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles because Paul was given the stewardship of the mystery of the church and he lived it out. Paul now goes on to describe for us specifically what a biblical mystery is. First, in verse 3, Paul tells us how he came to know the mystery. It was made known to him by a revelation by God. God disclosed it directly to him. As a matter of fact, Paul was not the only one to receive this disclosure, this revelation, this teaching from God of the mystery of the church. It was revealed to all the leaders of the church, the holy apostles and the prophets, by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit did his work of revealing to the leaders of the church the truth about Jesus and all that the cross had accomplished. The Holy Spirit revealed to them the doctrine of the church. Verse 4 tells us that the mystery was not made known to the sons of men in prior generations. And in verse 9 it says, the mystery was hidden in God for ages. So that means that the mystery was a truth that was not known before the time of the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. The mystery was a truth that could not be discovered by human reason or logic or deduction. Because the mystery was a truth that had to be revealed by God, that had to be disclosed by God himself. So what is that mystery? Let's look right there at verse 6, and we see the mystery so clearly explained. It says, this Mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 6 tells us with great clarity what the mystery is. The mystery is that the Gentiles are included in the gospel message. 
The church age is come, and God's plan is that all men everywhere hear the gospel, repent, and believe, and be made one body in Christ. Well, now we sit here some 2,000 years later, since the mystery has been revealed and explained, and we kind of go, you know, that's a big mystery? You know, what's, what's the big deal? The truth that the Gentiles are included in the gospel message, the truth that this thing called the body of Christ, the church, it's not a mystery to us. We count on it. As a matter of fact, it's one of the fundamental truths of our faith. You see, that is why it is such a big deal to Paul and the other Jewish apostles and the church leaders. The whole concept of the church for us that we know for them as a radical new revelation from God. Equality of all people, all ethnicities, all races, all genders, all social status under God. All people equally condemned. All people equally offered salvation through grace by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a radical truth that blew the minds of those first Jewish Christians. Jesus didn't come as the national Messiah for Israel. Jesus came as a Savior for all people, for the whole world. Even though the Old Testament prophesied this truth, the Jews were not looking for a Messiah to set up a spiritual kingdom that included the Gentiles as fellow citizens, as equal members in the household of God. They were looking for a national Messiah who would come and reign on the earth with power. The Bible is clear that there are still many prophecies to be filled for the nation of Israel and that Jesus will one day reign on the throne of David as king. But the Jews were so focused on the second advent of Christ that they missed the first. They were so focused on the reigning Messiah that they missed the suffering Messiah. Even to this very day, Jewish theology misses the clear teaching of the Old Testament about the suffering Messiah that would come to take away our sins. Through the cross of Christ, the dividing wall has been broken down. The message of reconciliation with God has been understood to go for all people. Jesus had abolished the need for following the Old Testament law because he had fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf, being the one and only holy and true sacrifice for our sins. And through the Spirit we are brought together, all believers into one body, as one church, the body of Christ. The revelation of the mystery of Christ was revealed. The gospel is for all. The church makes us one body. As verse 6 says, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That means we're all brothers and sisters of the same family. We have the same father. We have the same inheritance. We're all members of the same body. It says we are unified together as one. We all might be different, and we are. We're all given different parts to play and to do in the body. But we're all one body, equally important. There is no racial or ethnic or gender or social divisions in Christ. We're all partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Remember the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's Jesus' title. That's why Paul puts it first here. Christ means anointed one, Messiah. What Paul is saying here is that the Gentiles are partakers of the promise of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, has become our Messiah, has become our Savior. 
We all share equally in the blessings of the Messiah. We all are partakers of the promise of the Messiah. Well, how is that possible? How can this amazing brotherhood come apart uh, about? How has the two become one? How has this unity happened? Well, verse 6 tells us that it's through the gospel. It's through the gospel, the cross of Christ. Folks, the gospel is the single most important truth on planet Earth. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word Paul uses for power here is a Greek word that we get the word dynamite from. The gospel is the dynamite of God. It's the explosive power. It's the good news. It's the muscle of God. Remember, a good way to summarize the good news is to look at the main persons in the gospel. God, mankind, Jesus, and us. God. God is the creator of all things. He is perfectly holy, worthy of our worship, and he will punish sin. God holds all men accountable for their belief and action. Mankind. All people are sinful by nature and by choice. From birth, all people are alienated from God, enemies of God, subjects of God's wrath. Our sin has separated us from God. Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is fully man, who is fully God, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to bear the wrath of God in our place, that we who believe in him would have everlasting life. Jesus rose from the grave in order to give his people eternal life. Jesus loves us and he laid down his life for us. And then there's us. See, God calls everyone everywhere to repent. God calls us all to trust in Christ in order that we might be saved. Our salvation is by grace through faith in what Christ has done for us. You see, the gospel message is not really a choice between heaven and hell. Because salvation is not something that's just going to happen to us when we die. Salvation is a choice about believing in Christ or rejecting Christ right now. Salvation is about putting your faith in Christ, repenting from your sins, pledging to serve Jesus as the leader, as the Lord of your life right now. The goal of the gospel is not just to change our eternity, it's to change our right now. Is it the change in the now that makes everyone and everyone a fellow heir, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus? The gospel changes everything. Right now. Where are you right now with God? We'll follow along as we finish our passage here this morning on the mystery proclaimed, verses 7 through 13. It says, For this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord 
in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul's life focus, Paul's life privilege was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. In verse 7, Paul says that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. We might have the tendency to, to read that and suppose that Paul is talking about his profession. He is a minister. That's his job. Minister is a word that we often use to describe a professional title of a church leader. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. The word that Paul uses here is diakonos. Many of you instantly understand and recognize that word. It's the word that we derive our word deacon from. The heart of the meaning of that word is servant. See, what Paul is saying here is that when God showered his great grace upon him at his salvation, when God gifted him by his grace, he made him a servant of the gospel. The gospel, its message, its power, was his leader. It was his privilege to serve the gospel, to serve the one who the gospel is all about. Paul says that he was the least of all to receive such grace. See, Paul never forgot who he was before he came to Christ. But he never focused on his past life. Did you see what he focused on? But because of what Christ has done for him, he focused on God's grace. It was about God's grace. His mind and his heart were keenly focused on God's amazing grace. Paul never let himself begin to think that somehow now, well now, after all these years of faithful serving God, even suffering God, look, look, I'm in prison for God. But somehow I, I've arrived at this special place of godliness. No matter how much Paul grew in Christ, no matter how God significantly used him, he remained humble, realizing that it was all by the grace of God. It was all by God's grace. It was by God's grace and only by God's grace that Paul was the man he was, and he knew it. He was a servant of the gospel, humble. It was by God's grace that he was given the responsibility to preach to the Gentiles. It was by God's grace that it was revealed to him the mystery that was hidden for ages, the mystery of the church, the body of Christ, the oneness that we have in Christ, that all men everywhere can be reconciled to God through the cross of Christ, the gospel. Paul says in verse 10 that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You know what Paul is saying there is really amazing. Through the amazing plan, through the wisdom of God in creating the church and the manifold wisdom of God in the church, that the church is an object lesson for the angels, for the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. For them to learn about God's plan, the mystery of the church, the body of Christ, was a revelation to the angels as it was to the first church leaders. And as verse 11 says, this was all according to the eternal purpose that God had planned in Christ our Lord. All of heaven, all of earth is amazed at the plan of God, his church. For Paul, great theology always made a personal impact. That's where we get verse 12. It says that because of what Christ has done for us, because of this mystery, because of this church, 
Because of our faith in Him, we can boldly have access to God with confidence. You see, when Jesus reconciled us to God, He made a direct line of communication between us and our Father. The mystery is revealed. The mystery is explained. The mystery is proclaimed. The gospel is for everyone. The church is for everyone. Access to the God of the universe has been opened for everyone who believes. God still has mysteries for us yet to understand. Like when it comes to the monarch butterfly. But that's not true of a spiritual plan for you and me. The mystery is solved. The gospel, the church. Full access to God is here and proclaimed. Where are you? The church is not some creation of man. The church is not some convenient way to gather together and to do churchy, Christiany things. No, the church is the eternal plan of God. It's the manifold wisdom of God. The church is an expression of his wisdom, of his character, of his strategy, of his plan. The church is a truth that is radically Change the world. Rejoice. Rejoice. Let every tongue rejoice. One heart. One voice. O church of Christ. Rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, we stand here amazed. Amazed at the, that your wisdom and your plan. The angels long to look into it. And Lord, you revealed it out through your holy apostles and your prophets. You had your Holy Spirit write it down in the scripture for us to read and to understand that there is this thing called the church, the body of Christ. There is this mystery that binds us together as one. The wall has been broken down. There is no division. Reconciliation is available to you for all men of every race, of any time. Lord, this is amazing and wonderful and powerful, and we thank you for it. We come before you today to say thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us. Thank you for the privilege that we have of being a servant of your gospel, of your mystery. Thank you, Lord. We rejoice that we are a church. We are the body of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.